Welcome to the Race and Redemption Podcast. We're here to help white Christians move from questions to change. This is my friend Susan. She brings her whole heart to this conversation. She has a wealth of experience in cross-cultural relationships in her own family and in her community. And she marries that with the truth of scripture about race and redemption. And this is my friend Brooke. She has been researching these topics for years within the church, and she's bringing new information that's factual, accurate, and nonpartisan. And that's what the church needs right now. Today, our guest is Derwood Sneed. Derwood is a retired pastor and the co-founder of the Forsyth Descendant Scholarship. After 26 years in the business world, Derwood led the international work at North Point Ministries for almost 18 years. Derwood and his wife, Judy, live in Cumming, Georgia, and have five children and 16 grandchildren. Well, we are so excited to be here in the studio in person with Mr. Derwood Sneed. Derwood, I have heard so much about you from numerous different people, but particularly our friends Crawford and Karen Loretz have commended you and mm. the work that you're doing to us for several seasons now. And uh, we're just overjoyed to get to meet you and talk about what God has been showing you over the past three years and the way that you've responded. I think it's going to just, I think, really excite and probably ignite some of our listeners to be able to look around in their own context and figure out what God wants them to do where He has them planted. Well, thank you so much for the honor of being here. Yeah, Crawford and Karen have been such a huge encouragement, and uh, I'm just so honored that uh, you know to spend a few minutes talking. Awesome. Well, let's kind of back up a little bit before we jump into everything that's going on now, and maybe tell us a little bit about growing up. Did you grow up in a racially diverse context? Were you taught uh, an accurate historical representation of race in our country? You know, I grew up in the capital of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. So um, it was really an interesting place to grow up. Later, we moved. I got transferred in my career to Birmingham, Alabama, and I had not experienced the Deep South before. So we didn't have separate bathrooms for black and white people in Richmond and things like that that I experienced when I moved to Alabama. But we certainly were a segregated city. There's no question about it. There were areas of the city, wards, where African-Americans lived, and then there were other places where white people lived. Mm -hmm. I went back and researched a lot of the history in Richmond to really learn how neighborhoods were established, and there were black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, and there were dividing lines. In fact, there was one street named Cary Street, I remember, that divided the southern and the northern part of the cities that were on one side of the James River, which is also a division. Mm. And on one side of Cary Street was where the black families lived. The other side was where white families lived. So it was a very segregated city. When I was in high school, forced busing was uh, legislated. And so that was the first time I ever went to school with African-American kids. It was a very tense time because uh, this was in, I graduated from high school in 1969. So in 1968, obviously, with all the different things that happened with Martin Luther King being killed and Bobby Kennedy and race riots in California and so many different places. And we had riots in Richmond. We had um, a lot of 
disturbance and uh, a lot of destruction, a lot of people just reaching out because they were so angry mm-hmm. about the way everything was playing out. And at the same time, my parents, I would say now that my parents certainly were racist, and yet they really purposely reached out to people that work for them. And my parents were blue-collar workers. Mm-hmm. But my dad would have people that he would bring over to help him work every once in a while and do some things. He had some rental property. Mm-hmm. And he would always have them in for lunch. And so we would spend time inside in lunch. And he would wanted to know about their family and all those kind of things. But then it was a separate world. Mm-hmm. You know, they would go home. They would not be around us. We wouldn't socialize with them. And so, in fact, my parents even told me, they said, you know, the black people in this city live differently than we do, and uh, we just need to kind of keep separate from Mm. that. But all of that changed when I was in high school and I got a job at a cleaners, and it was just my first job. I was 14 years old, and a number of black people were in response, pretty significant responsibility there. There was one guy named Charles who was over everyone in the back of the cleaners, were like 50 employees, And he kind of took me under his wing, which I thought was just so kind of him because I was this young kid. I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know about how to take care of myself or how to really please my boss, but at the same time, not have my boss run over me. And he just kind of brought me in and just started giving me advice Mm -hmm. on the side. And I just so appreciated that. And I had lots of conversations with him just about life and about how he interacted with the people there, because sometimes even the language that he used was language that So that's strange. But he said, no, I can use that language, but you can't use that language. Mm. And then I developed several friends there that we were just co-workers. And uh, we we trash talked. We talked about sports and just became good friends. And that was the first time I really had good friends that were black. And they weren't my age. They were older than I was. Mm. And we were co-workers. We were friends. And then this one guy was kind of a mentor to me. So Mm -hmm. that changed a lot of my thoughts and attitudes from what my parents had said. I never hated black people. I didn't think I was racist. And yet I had developed a lot of these attitudes that I'd been kind of taught and lived among Mm -hmm. and lived in jokes that I would hear about black people and and laugh at those and thought they were funny. And even the stuff I remember now that we look back on TV and a lot of the comedy, the Amos and Andy stuff and everything Mm -hmm. that were really exemplifying all of the stereotypes that People were making jokes about it with black people, and then this was on TV. Mm-hmm. And now I look back at that and said, it's amazing. You know, how I was just clueless. I just was kind of living life and around it. But one of the things it's helped me do is to really think about this question about how we might be judged 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy to look at the history and the past and judge people in another generation. Mm-hmm. And much harder, I think, to look at where we are today and think about what will people be saying mm-hmm. 100 years from now? Like, what in the world was Derwood thinking, you know, in 2023 <laughs> yeah. when he did this and whatever that was? Yeah. And I've talked to a couple of reporters about that. And they always immediately come up, oh, what do you think they are? What are those mm-hmm. things? And I'm not sure, you know. But one of the things I think about a lot that doesn't specifically relate to race here, but since I was a missions pastor at our church for almost 18 years, one of the things I think about is how much wealth we have here in this country. Mm-hmm. And then I think about a third of the world can't eat. You know, they're hungry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to be judged for that. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. This is not something easy to figure out because these are difficult places with lots of corruption, lots of challenges. They're difficult to get to. And yet the thing I keep coming back to is Coca-Cola's figured it out. Yeah. They're selling Coca-Cola in all those places. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like that we need to start wrestling with things that are hard and not shy away from them just because of the challenges. But if we have a goal, for example, that we're trying to eliminate hunger in the world, 
if we were solidly focused on that goal, then I think that we would figure out a way to do it. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you brought this up because Josh and I last night were talking about the famine that's been going on in Somalia and oh, the yeah. statistics that I was hearing about just what it's going to take. A lot of here in Africa is in famine Absolutely. right now, right? Absolutely. And yeah. the, it would take around 2 to $3 billion right now to, to care for and feed everyone that's facing famine there. And then I was remembering that's how much it costs to make Avatar, the new film. <laughs> right, right. And it just, we both just sat there with tears in our eyes looking at each other like, how do we solve that? Right. Like, we went and saw Avatar. Right. You know? I mean, right. we, and it's just... Or the gaming industry. Yeah. But think about it's, how much you spend on gaming monthly. It's confounding. You know? right. But I love that you're asking that question because I think we also do that with the scriptures. We look back and think, why did Israel do that? I think it's a natural response. And yet, when you look back at what happened in Forsyth County, which is where you live, and have lived for 15 oh, It's years? almost 34 years oh, now. Oh, gosh. I missed that one. Yeah. We look back and think, how could this have happened? And yet you are asking the same question, what can I do today? You know, how am I going to be judged by what I do with this information today? Right. And you responded. So could you tell our listeners a little sure. bit about what happened in Forsyth County? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe just a little bit of history for me there, too. So we moved there in 1989, which was two years after the Brotherhood marches mm -hmm. that occurred there where Hosea Williams led those. The first march was awful, where it was a lot, there was a lot of violence. There was rock throwing, bottle throwing. And those marches, pretty much after a very short time period, just a few minutes there, had to be loaded on buses and taken out for their safety. Mm -hmm. And then two weeks later, there was another Brotherhood march with a lot National Guard there, a lot of protection. And that was a lot more peaceful. And then Oprah Winfrey came that same year and did her first road show in Forsyth County, Georgia in 1987. That was her first time on the road. <laughs> And you, you can still see it on YouTube. And I am amazed when I look at that and how she held it together because she had radical races. She had Ku Klux Klan people in the room. And at one point she looked at a guy and said, you do know I'm black, right? Because you're saying this right in front of me into my face. And yet at that point, she called Forsyth County the most racist county in America in 1987. And it certainly was competing for that, you know? So I moved there then, and I remember going to my builder, who was also head of the Chamber of Commerce, and asking him in 1988 when we bought land there, I said, okay, this just happened last year, all these Brotherhood marches and everything. Are we moving to the wrong place? Because I was really moving there. This is kind of funny. I was really moving there to get more diversity for my family. We were living in an upscale, middle-class, yuppie area where all my kids saw were people exactly like them. They went to school with people like them. And all they saw is people that had nice cars, nice houses, and everything around them. And I said, I want to move to the country so that my kids can experience country life and what that's like. And we did have country life because most of the people in Forsyth County, a lot of them had farms still. Um, my son's baseball coach smoked and chewed in the dugout. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. the, and this is just, you know, there were country yeah. people and they were nice people, country people. They're very welcoming. But when we moved there, we were part of the 10% that were outsiders. All the other people, 90% of the county had been there for multiple generations when we moved there then. Forsyth County has grown dramatically. It's very, it's a dramatically different from that now. Whereas 10% of the county now are the people that were there a long time. 90% oh of the county have moved in the last 25 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Went from 44,000 to almost 300,000 people, you know, in this time period that Goodness. I've been there. And with a fair amount of diversity, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But so I moved there and... Um, you know, every once in a while, I would hear someone talk about race and black people and, and celebrate the fact that there were no black people here. 
Say, hey, mm. you know, there's no black people here. We kind of like that. And the other people would lament the fact that there are no black people here and saying, we really need more diversity in this county. And we wish more people would move here. So I remember hearing all that. And over time, I would hear about some of the dark racial history and little, almost like epithets that people would mention or I'd read something. And one day I was reading an article somewhere that I found about Forsyth County and I mentioned a town called Oscarville. And I have a little boat, a little fishing boat that I keep in the north end of Lake Lanier. And I go right by a little place that's called the Oscarville Food Mart to put my boat in the water. And there's a little sign called Oscarville Way. I said, wait a minute. You know, I read some stuff. I need mm -hmm. to research what happened here. So about three years ago, I began researching. I got on Google. I started finding everything I could about Oscarville and what happened racially in the county. I found my friend now, Patrick Phillips' book called Blood at the Root, where Patrick grew up in the county. He's now a professor at Stanford University, but he did 10 years of research on the history of what happened there. And all the events that were mainly around the catalytic part of expelling African-Americans from the county happened in 1912. So here's what I learned. So in 1912, it was a fascinating time because most of Forsyth County was relatively poor. There were no rail lines coming there. There was no big industry. You know, a lot of people that were farmers in the county. There were certainly some people that were big landowners. But there, from what we can tell, there were never plantations in Forsyth County. There was slavery, but it was on a fairly small scale because people didn't have enough money to buy mm -hmm. all the slaves. They relatively poor. And there were about 12,000 people in the county in 1912, and about 1,100 of them were black. They lived throughout the county. They lived pretty much in the same communities where white people live. We've now tracked them back by the census records to see where people lived. So things became a bit racially charged, though, in 1912, because there were two events that occurred. One white woman claimed that she was raped. Later, the charges against the people that were arrested for that who were black were dismissed because very little evidence. Some people thought it was either consensual or that she got caught in a situation and was just trying to get out of it. But that, that was kind of dismissed. But that happened. And literally within 10 days, another white woman, actually 18 years old, named May Crow, was raped and brutalized, and she ended up dying of her injuries. So with those two events happening, there were crowds that started developing around all this. And then there were black people that were churches that were meeting on a campground a few miles outside the city center of coming. And the rumors started going around that these people are now threatening to take over the city and they're going to blow up downtown and are going to take the county over. And now they've raped two white women. Wow. And this rumor just started moving and going. And I've seen the same thing kind of happen in other countries around the world where a lie starts circulating mm -hmm. One group feels threatened by another group, and then they begin moving into a mob mentality, and then they're capable of all kinds of inhumanity. It happened in Rwanda, mm -hmm. where you know literally almost a million yeah. people were killed in 90 days, and I've been there, and know people there. And, and almost, you know, it's interesting how, as a follower of Jesus, I really believe that Satan's very active, and he's a deceiver, and he kind of uses the same game plan kind of over and over and over again. So... After Macro was raped, the following, they, it took them, it was on a Sunday when it all happened. She disappeared. They couldn't find her. Search parties went out and they found her the next morning, early the next morning on Monday. She was unconscious. She had been beaten with a rock. She had been raped. She was still alive, but not conscious. And they brought her back to her parents' home. Interestingly enough, there was not even a hospital in town. So they brought her to her parents' home. Yeah. A local doctor was attending to her. And then that day, they arrested five people that lived on her street that were all black for the crime. 
with very little evidence. There was a mirror that was found near her body. One of the black kids in the neighborhood, they asked, anybody know whose mirror this is? And this one kid who's 16 years old raised and yeah, it's my mirror. Well, they arrested him. And then they arrested several other people around him. That night in jail, there was a mob that broke into the jail, pulled one guy out whose name was Rob Edwards, killed him, and then lynched him in downtown Cumming on a telephone pole. Then two of the five people that were arrested were tried in a very quick trial. It was about three hours each for a capital murder trial. One was 16 and one was 17, and they were both convicted. And then 21 days later, which was the law that they had to wait for 21 days, 21 days later, they were publicly hung. There were almost 5,000 people that came to attend the hanging. They have a picture, almost a natural amphitheater kind of area with a hill where they had the gallows and all these people there. I mean, and there were black people there, which is kind of crazy, you know, because they have some, they were probably maybe servants in some way of some of the white people, but we don't know, but there were black people there too. And I'm sure a lot of black people were saying, okay, these were our friends or these were our neighbors. And now they're, you know, there's this hanging and they came to that. But all of that is terrible, and we will never know who was guilty of that crime. You know, these 16- and 17-year-old boys, Oscar Daniel and Ernest Knox, may or may not have been, probably not, because there were certain things that they did in terms of even admitting that that was the mirror, you know, and other kinds of things that you wouldn't have done if you were guilty. There were a lot of circumstantial evidence that says that they were not guilty, but we will never know that. We're not even debating that fact. But then what happened was Knight Riders went out to every black home in the county and told people, if you don't leave immediately, we will kill you. And in many cases, they began blowing homes up and shooting in homes to prove that they were serious. So in a very short time period, we don't know exactly how many people, but there were 1,098 black people in the census two years before, in 1910. So we assume there's just over 1,100 black people two years later were forcibly expelled from the county, and they went in all directions immediately just to get out. Because everyone was afraid they were going to be killed. Leaving they behind just, everything they owned. Right. Leave, yeah. Whatever they could their bring lands, on their back. Their homes. Right. And there were many people that died in the exodus because uh, there were people that couldn't go over the bridge over the Chattahoochee River if they went to Hall County. So they had to go through the river. And a lot of people drowned. There was one pastor that lost his wife and two children in the exodus as they drowned. So they went in all these different directions. And... um I moved to the county in 1989, as I mentioned. In the 1990 census, there were 14 black people in Forsyth County, one-four. So it went from zero in 1912 to one-four in 1990, okay? White County, you know, really Mm -hmm. for all that time period. We heard that there were a few families, black families, that tried to move back and immediately had their homes destroyed by fire, so they moved out. Wow. There were at least seven churches, black churches, that were all destroyed. You know, there was a couple of black schools that were destroyed. Now, there have been some cool things I'll tell you about that have happened to kind of resurrect some of that and to honor some of these people. But yeah, that's what happened. So when Judy and I, my wife and I, learned about this, and we're reading Patrick Phillips' book, especially as he really goes into great detail, and I was reading about the Exodus and imagining being one of these black men who could not take care of his family and had to leave in shame and danger and go somewhere in the country, not knowing where, where nobody wanted me. And quite frankly, I wept as I imagined that. I said, that was just awful. These people did nothing. Whoever committed that crime, that's, that's a different issue. But for no reason whatsoever, just being expelled, like losing your home, your possessions, 58 of these people were landowners. One owned 200 acres, one owned 60 acres. 
So there was some significant land, you know, holdings there, but it was at least 1,100 people. There were 290 families in the 1910 census, and then 58 of those families were landowners really in the county. So as I began thinking about this, I weeping, you know, and then something came over me and said, so what are you going to do about this? And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I don't need have any idea. And so I met with our pastor. I'm a pastor too, retired pastor, missions pastor from North Point Ministries. So I met with our pastor in Forsyth County at Browns Bridge Church, Adam Johnson. And actually the way I met with him was kind of funny. I reached out to the author, Patrick Phillips. He got in touch with me. He said, well, another guy in your county, Reverend Adam Johnson's reached out to me too. <laughs> Adam's a good friend of mine. I didn't know that. So well, Adam That's I, Jesus, isn't it? Yes. So I went over to Adam's house one afternoon right after that, and we spent three hours just talking, praying, thinking. And he told me, he said, I've already had Patrick Phillips come to speak to the staff at Brownsbridge Church just to help them understand the history of our county. He said, we've been thinking about an idea, which is a college scholarship for descendants of those people that were expelled. So long story short, we went together and began meeting with other pastors in the county. And we got about 12 or 13 pastors together. We all started talking and praying through this. And so we, as a pastoral group, launched a college scholarship for descendants of those Black people that were expelled in 1912. And it's significant. It's $10,000 per year. And we then invited the entire community to jump on board and helping. And we've told everybody, and we met with a lot of friends, a lot of Black friends, first of all, before we launched this to find out, is this even a good idea? You know, I yeah. mean, and that's very it, important in this kind of work to not assume that you right. know the solution. And, and so we're or, saying we, we have no idea. We don't want to be offensive in any way. We just want to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And so what we told our black friends, look, we know this is not justice. This is not a reckoning. This is not making things right. But it's simply an act of love by some followers of Jesus that feel like it's better to do something than to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And almost all of our black friends said with that as a proviso, we think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And then we went to a bunch of white friends, pastors especially. You know, as you can imagine, this is a challenging thing for pastors. They've got a variety of people in their churches. They're trying to reach people that don't go to their church, some of which might agree with this and some might not. And so they're in kind of a challenging position. But these pastors are very bold. And we told them, we said, okay, you need to understand too, again, this is not anything else. This is not tied to any other movement or any other initiative that's going on. And we are not making any comments, pro or con, about any other movements. This is its own thing. Again, this is simply an act of love by some followers of Jesus. I think we can all agree that the expulsion was just awful. Mm -hmm. And we just simply want to do something that we think can be helpful for the next generation. We shouldn't feel guilty because we didn't do it. But the thing that I do feel is I feel great compassion for the people that were affected. And I feel very ashamed of what happened in our county, right? And it wasn't me. Nobody alive today was kind of part of this, but it's a shameful thing that happened. And it should be shameful. And we should, we should live in that shame, I think, for a while. And at the same time, to realize that while we don't have responsibility for the sins of our ancestors, we all have responsibility for the future of children. I think that's a big question a lot of people have, which is I didn't personally do this. So why am I responsible for doing anything about it? Or am I? Right. I think you hit the nail on the head talking about the future as well. It's not just about the past. Right. Well, you know, what I've learned too, and I've just spent a lot of time, especially the last two years, just listening, you know, especially to a lot of black friends. And, and you know, 
the folks at One Race have been very helpful, mm-hmm. and uh, we're involved in a a group that's kind of a One Race affiliate group called Uniting the Tribe. And I spend a lot of time there just listening, listening especially to my black friends as they talk, because I realize that we all look at the world through a lens, you know, lens of our experiences, of what we think, what we've been taught, all those kind of things. And just because I see things a certain way through my lens, I have no idea what the lens is of other friends. And so I've just been listening a lot around that. But the other thing is, I'm just feeling more and more that truth is the thing that we need to be pursuing. And so when people come to me and say, why in the world are you dragging this old stuff up from the past? You know, my feeling is, well, the truth just sets everybody free. You know, we didn't do this, but let's acknowledge that it happened. And what I've learned from my black friends is while the scholarship is helpful, the acknowledgement is way more important because so many have told me this has never been acknowledged. My family suffered greatly over this event and no one has even acknowledged it. And many people in these black families did not want to talk about it because it was shameful. So one of the things recipients or applicants have to do to get this scholarship is they have to have a 2.5 GPA, which we wanted to have a reasonable GPA, but realize many of them may be working and supporting someone else, you know, so not to have it too high. But they also have to write a, they have to prove descendancy. And we have a genealogist that's helping with that because a lot of times the story is there but they may not have all the connections back to the last couple of generations back to 1912. So, I mean, we've got a genealogist that really helps with that. But the big one that we love is that they have to write an essay on the journey of their family after the expulsion. And the coolest thing to us is that many of these students or applicants have learned stories about their families that had been hidden Mm. and they've now come to light. And many of the families have actually thanked us saying, thank you so much but pulling this out, we, it has never been told. And we knew there was this history with Forsyth County, but they would not talk about it, you know, because it was just a shameful and painful thing. And it was just almost too hard to rip it open again to talk about it. But in reading these essays, I feel like such a whimp mm. because the stories are unbelievable. For example, a pastor losing his wife and a couple of children, he's still got two more, and he's got to go to a place nobody wants him. But he says, I've got two kids. What do I do now? So he knew how to raise chickens. So he got some chickens, started raising chickens, started another church, started a school for black kids, started a funeral home for black families because they have nowhere to bury their people. I mean, that's just amazing to yeah. me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you've left everything behind. Yes. And lost family members, yes. including his mm-hmm. wife, right? And is starting over. So I love the fact, too, that a lot of these students are hearing the, about the story of their ancestor and being mm-hmm. so inspired, saying, mm-hmm. I want to honor my great-grandmother yes. or my great-grandfather who did this, you know, because that's my blood. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they overcame a tremendous adversity. Our family still struggles to some extent because of that, because so many families are still having generational challenges yeah. coming through. There's an amazing story here in Atlanta of the Bagley family, and we've gotten to know this lady named Elon Osby who's uh, one of the descendants, and she lives in Atlanta. She's with the Atlanta Housing Authority. But her family were named Bagley then, and then they got moved to, uh, they moved to Buckhead when they left Forsyth County and went to a place called Macedonia Park. And I think there were over 100 black families that lived there. They would not give them public water and sewer in Bagley Park. And so they, they renamed it Bagley Park, I'm sorry, because the guy that had kind of been the overseer of that area, his name was Bagley, which is a descendant from Forsyth County. And so he was the mayor. And so then the white 
people around them started complaining about the stench of the outhouses. So they expelled them again. So they got kicked out of Buckhead. And Elon tells the story. She said, what really ticked me off about this story was that they changed the name of the park. It was no longer Bagley After Park. They well, left. just recently they got it changed back. So the Buckhead Heritage Foundation got on board with it and said, wait a minute. We got to at least right. honor these families, these hundred and some black families mm-hmm. that were here living on this land mm-hmm. that got expelled. And so at least was a way to honor that. So we've kind of connected with them. And now the Atlanta History Center has gotten on board. That's and they're great. starting to digitally record the stories of some of the oldest descendants that are still alive that were expelled from Forsyth County. Mm-hmm. And are these stories shared when you give the awards? I know you had the awards a couple months ago, the first ones. And so what what is that ceremony like? Are they sharing their stories? Are they meeting each other? Yeah, so we had nine recipients in the first year. So we launched this February 1st of last year, and then we made the first awards in June. And then we had a celebration in August. And so at the celebration in August, most of the recipients were there. Their families were there and friends, a lot of donors. We didn't want this to be a public spectacle, so mm-hmm. we kept it kind of a small yeah. group. But it was still 150 people, I guess, that were there. And we had two of the recipients that read their essays there to the entire group. For all of them to read it would have taken a long time. Right. But, but the other thing was we thought it would be great to have a representation. And they were phenomenal. So... We actually have those two essays up on our website. We're trying to be respectful of people's privacy. So if they agree for us to publish it, we will. You know, if they don't, then we want to honor that privacy. Have you had people pushing back against what you're trying to do or question or challenge you? You know, a few, but not too many. I've been to every Rotary Club in Forsyth County, I think, and all the Optimist Clubs. We're just trying to meet with all the, the mayor, the head of the county commission, just trying to let people know what this is and what it isn't, you know. And to get the word out. And we've gotten some fairly good press. The AJC, Forsyth County News, 11 Alive, and some others have picked it up. And then all of them came back again this year when we just launched the second year and Mm -hmm. ran the story last week, which is really neat. But some people have pushed back on the whole idea of, you know, again, why are you bringing up something old and ripping a scab off an old wound? You know, the first response is, well, I mean, if it's a wound, it's still there, right? And, (laughs) And so, and that's the issue. For so many, but what I've also tried to help some people in Forsyth County believe, because we have changed so much, and it is a great place to live, but we still have a brand on us from what happened in the past. That will never, ever go away. And what we are trying to help some people that may have a little pushback on it, because it's embarrassing, is that the only way we overcome the brand is by what we do going forward. And if we can be known in the future for our love and for our acceptance of people, that's the only way that brand gets overcome. It's a little bit like the Scarlet Letter. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just there because of this thing that happened in your past, what you did, what you were, you know, complicit in really around all this. I feel like with that idea, and now we are spending a lot of time this year inviting people to what we're calling a redemption story, saying, join the redemption story. And, you know, this county has a dark racial history. We have changed so much in that today we are 15% Asian. We are 10% Hispanic. We're still only about 45 to 4.7% Black, but that's 12,000 Black people because the county's grown so much, which is more than the entire population of the county was in 1912. So there are more Black people there now than there were entire population then, which is interesting. 
But there are still many black people that are afraid to come to Forsyth County to work, and we need them. The schools need them. I know the person who's head of human resources for the school system, and they are trying to recruit black people to come. They're great teachers to come and teach, you know, there in the county. Because especially for, look at all the diversity we have. We're going to have, I think, 19 schools that will be majority-minority next year in Forsyth County. Those kids need to be seeing some teachers that look like them, you know? And, and so, so do the white children. Absolutely. Yes. They need absolutely. to sit under the authority and teaching yes. of people that don't look like That's them. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But we are very encouraged by so many of the discussions and conversations that are going on. I feel like so many of the things in the past have been an event that might talk about what happened in 1912, but then the event's gone or that celebration's gone. This is something we think and we hope can go forward for years and can continue to be a conversation piece that can keep the racial discussion front and center as we think about it. We have a dream that at some point Forsyth County is known for the redemption story and that others can then look at that and say, yeah, look at what happened there and now look at where it is, that there are a bunch of people that are known for love and known for accepting anyone. And one of the cool things that just recently happened was that our newest school in the county is called New Hope Elementary School, and it's gorgeous. Just opened in August, and is named after a black school in the early 1900s. So it was called New Hope School that was destroyed. And the principal is very out there about it, and she's white, but she's very out there. Hey, look, we just want everybody to know this happened in 1912. This school got destroyed. This school is named after that school and in honor of that school. And this school is all about acceptance and about being willing and ready and open to accepting everyone that comes and wanting everyone to feel comfortable, mm-hmm. no matter what their race, their color, their background, experience. So that's super encouraging. Yeah. We have a black cemetery that was completely redone last year. The graves were all examined. They did sonar probes to determine how many graves were there. They marked all of them. And it's really become a very reverent place now. And it was in shambles before, you know, because it, the church next to it had been destroyed. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of neat things like that mm-hmm. that are happening. What would you say to people that are hearing this story and maybe they're feeling or hearing an idea or they're thinking about something in their neighborhood or school or Mm. church that like, how do you follow that? What's the first step that you do? How do you keep, I guess, pursuing the spirit and where the spirit's leading, even if it seems too big or too small? Maybe they think it's too small. Right. I have never been anywhere in the world. I've been to I've only been to 71 countries, you know, there's 215, so it's less than about a third of them. But I've never been anywhere in the world where you couldn't sit down with a person and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and talk about your family and you couldn't become friends. Mm. And I think that's the main thing. Like anybody that you feel like is maybe your enemy or is not, or you may feel like I just don't have anything in common with them or anything, sit down and take them to dinner or just have a meal or a cup and just talk about each other and your family. Because, you know, so many of the things that the media puts out there are just simply elevating extremes. Mm-hmm. And very few people live in the extreme, right? You know, we, we've all got these experiences and everything. But sit down and talk. I, I just recently had a very prominent person in our county tell me he's Asian. And he told me, he said, you know, most Asian people, and I didn't know this. This is him telling me. He said, but most Asian people will not reach out and, and invite you to a meal because they think it's too forward. Mm. But if you do it, you invite them to a meal, they'll be your best friend. Mm. And 
I didn't know that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I've been trying to be more intentional about that. And I think the whole process too of just listening and learning, because there's so many things that we just don't know because we don't see through the lens of another person and what they're encountering. So February just launched the next round for right. the scholarship. Can you tell us the process, kind of sure. what that looks like yeah. and maybe how listeners could get involved and follow yeah, what you're doing? Absolutely. So the two big things that were a challenge for us in the beginning and are still a challenge today are one, number one is finding descendants, getting the word out so they hear about it. And number two is the fundraising because it's all privately funded. So the press has really been helpful in helping to get the word out. We now have a network of descendants. The author, Patrick Phillips, was very generous in introducing us to a number of his sources so that we were able to try to get the word out. And he supported us financially as well. And he's kind of talking it up because this is something tangible. So the process is that the application period opened February 1st and closes April 30th. And then at the end of that application period, then we have a committee of five people, three people of color on it, and two people that are white that then evaluate all those applications uh, without knowing who the people are. So we have an administrator that takes out all the names and everything. So we hopefully are doing it with a blind eye of justice, you know, as we're evaluating all that. And then at the end, we, based on how much money we've received, then we determine who out of these candidates actually receives a scholarship. And then our administrator reveals to us who they are. And uh, then we let them know by the middle of June And then we are planning again a celebration in August to celebrate that old fact. In the meantime, we we fundraise until May 1st so that we know then, okay, we kind of cut off at May 1st so we know, okay, what are we dealing with? Because now we need to start evaluating applications and everything around that. So we've got a website that kind of describes everything in the entire process, including the application, the backstory, and all of that. It's just ForsythScholarship.com. And then from a donation standpoint, it's just for scholarship.com slash donate. And there are two ways that people can donate. One, through the National Christian Foundation. We have a donor-directed fund there. And then in August of last year, we received our own 501c3 designation from the IRS. And so people can give directly to us as well, and all the information really is there. So both of those are, are important. It's been so cool to hear so many people last year that heard about this that were unrelated directly to Forsyth County. but one. His father had been a real estate developer and had done some real estate development for Scythe County. He heard about it and he said, hey, my family's made a lot of money in that county, so I want to give to this. And others in other states just hear about it and say, this is just cool. I just want to be part of it. And um, there are others that say, I don't have a lot of money, but I can give $50. And I, I really want to be part of this redemption story coming around that. The other way is that we have opportunities for people to also help recipients with care packages and writing them notes of encouragement throughout the year. Because we want to be cheerleaders for all of these recipients of the scholarship. We do connect them with mentors and we try to give them what they, and the mentors are usually in the field of study where they're studying. Now I have five children. I realize that of all of my children, I think only one of them ended up majoring in the same thing that she started <laughs> to major in. So I realize that a freshman doesn't necessarily know what that is, but we want to try to match them up as much as we can with a mentor that can help. So if they're interested in marine biology, we're trying to get a marine biologist with them, really to try to help them mm-hmm. with that. But others can volunteer by just cheering them on because we we want them to feel like by receiving the scholarship, it's not just the money. We want them to know that, hey, we are behind you. We want to be your cheerleader. We want to do everything we can to help you be successful. It'd be a really cool dream at some point if some of these came back and worked in our county, you know, as professionals and really 
following their dream, but also just serving the county that did so much evil to them. I still love the mentor part of it. And it's something we've learned in a lot of talking to people, you know, who are part of redemption stories that there's not a quick fix. And so you just need someone to walk with you. I think that's really important. You mentioned earlier, you had sought out the opinions or input from Black Mm -hmm. families in the area about how do you design this program? Mm -hmm. Do you still have a committee that's involved in that process of selection and mentoring that kind of can help give you that guidance and wisdom on how to to genuinely help the students? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. Three of the people on our selection committee are are black. Two of them live in our county and one lives outside the county. But he has been very actively involved in working with black churches, especially. He's actually a business person, but he lives in the Washington, D.C. area. But he's a friend. And we thought it would be great to have somebody that's just completely outside the situation who is African-American, but very involved and cares. And he is taking this very seriously. So he's a part of that. So those people certainly are giving us advice. But then we've got just great friends like Crawford and Karen Loritz, people like Josh Clemens and and Dan Crane at One Race, and then we somebody Elon Osby, one of the descendants. So we've got a number of these folks. There's a great pastor in Buford named Avery Head, who's a pastor of Poplar Hills Baptist Church, which is a very old black church. And a number of descendants from Forsyth County, when they left, went to work in a tannery in Buford. And so he has a number of descendants in his church. So he's been an advice. So we have it's not a formal advisory group. But we're meeting with these people regularly. They're actually hosting events for us and hosting things. And then in the course of that, we're listening, talking, and then they've connected us. We've now gotten connected with Judge Rodney Harris in Gwinnett County, who's a black descendant of Forsyth County. We've become friends with him. And he has a really cool thing to try because he's in a defects court. And so he's got these teenagers coming in that, you know, are on the verge of going to prison for their entire life. And he has a ministry that he started with some policemen to try to shock them into reality and then to show them a different way, which is really, he's such a cool guy. And so anyway, a lot of those friends like that, that we're spending a lot of time with and just constantly asking, okay, what do we need to know? Where do we need to go from here? What else can be helpful? And, you know, when people have given a lot of thought, they don't have got a lot of great advice for you. So we're still in the learning phase. And I think we've got a lot to learn about how to help these recipients be even more successful and to really put more wind you know, behind their sails and expose them to also different thoughts, different ideas, and different ways of looking at the world. Because I think college for all of us that go to college is a kind of a eye-opening experience, you know, getting exposed to different writers, thoughts, but even professors. And at the same time, we can get driven down. If we, Depending on what voices we listen to, we can go one path or another, right? That can be good for us in society or bad for us in society. So we just love the fact that we might have the opportunity to help connect some of these potential recipients with people that could really be helpful for them. I'm so excited to hear from you in five, six, seven years when you have your first round of graduates, they're out in the workforce, Mm. they're back in their communities. And I think that's when, I mean, I would call it the fun is really going to begin because we're going to get to see the fruit and when and they something, may be mentors, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. For the next class yeah. that comes through. Right? Exactly. So thank you for just listening to Jesus and mm. responding. I think that that is just underrated. Someone that says yes. And you said yeah. yes. 
to the Lord. So thank you for that. The way that not only is it impacting your county, these descendants, so many people, but but us, Mm -hmm. you know, I think everyone you meet, when you share this story, it's Mm -hmm. touching more and more people. And Mm -hmm. it's really going to be a domino effect. That's how the kingdom works, you know, Mm -hmm. that the Lord is going to inspire and lead other people to do incredible things because you said yes. So thank you. But thank you so much. (laughs) I mean, it's a labor of love and just been a joy to kind of get into a different world that God's opened my eyes to so many things and I'm just learning so much. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Amen. Yeah. joining us today for the race and redemption podcast make sure not to miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button on our page wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on instagram at race and redemption so you can join the conversation today this episode was produced by matt owen for soul graffiti productions